All right, three, two, one, and here we go. Daniela, thank you for coming on the podcast with me. It does mean a lot. Look, don't worry about the rescheduling debacle. That's completely fine. I'm really flexible with my guests when it comes to uh, rescheduling and stuff. But yeah, it means a lot to me that you'd come on and tell your story. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. No, that's perfectly fine. Um, I would like to start the podcast with a quote though and the quote and the quote is uh now stop me if you know this one it's uh the first rule of a cult is you're not in the cult (laughs) i do know that one i believe that is the first line of my book yeah it is (laughs) um so can you tell me a little more or dive a little more deeply into that quote yeah so it starts with me trying to explain my cult experience for so many years and sort of realizing that as soon as you say cult, you're immediately an other, right? As soon as they say, I grew up in a cult, immediately the average American or the average person I'm running into thinks that my life is nothing like their life. Mm. Yet my entire experience of you know, first of all, like America compared to other countries in the world is quite culty. And then I was in the military, which is quite culty. And then I've been in so many different kinds of groups and studied all these different groups. And there's obviously like specific sort of extreme things about cults, but the same group behavior that I see in cults, I see just in all kinds of groups. And the same, you know, groups that would be considered just as cult-like as Children of God that I grew up in are just considered somebody's church here in America, just because it hasn't gotten on anybody's radar yet. So the first rule of cults is you're never in a cult came from me kind of trying to explain, you know, nobody ever sees their group or their thing as a cult. They're always only seeing somebody else's thing as a cult. And my entire sort of purpose of writing this story and comparing a sex cult to the U.S. military was just to get people to look at their experience through a different lens and say, you know, what is cult like about my groups? Yeah, I did get that. Um, I haven't finished your book yet. I'm about halfway through. It's a really good memoir book, by the way. Um, Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And I I do get the comparison where you're trying to come from so far. Is you're not trying to say the US military is like this sex cult that I grew up in. You're just trying to say there are similarities. It's kind of like um it's a tribalism is what you're really trying to get at. I think maybe a group to group mentality. So if you're a part of <laughs> let's just say if you're a if you're a far left person or a far right person, that's your tribe, that's your cult quote-unquote correct and also that the reason that we don't understand cults and they seem to be this like mythical thing is because we're always looking at it as this thing that we could never be a part of you know so it's it's really hard to kind of get people to understand that the people in cults are ordinary people that just have bought into this way of life and and programming and group but like it's not some sort of thing where you've become brainwashed automatons and now you are this you know mi- militaristic force kind of for 
these people that want to drive you. And there's just so many kind of almost like cartoonish or exaggerated ways that people think of cults. I mean, even the, the relatives of people who died at Jonestown have said, you know, talking about brainwashing just isn't like, it doesn't grant give reality to what it actually was like how much they were manipulated, but also how much they buy into it and how normal it seems. Mm. Yeah, well, look, I totally understand that. I just had um someone on who was in Scientology for 27 years. And personally, I think Scientology isn't a religious church. I think it personally is a cult. And he, Absolutely. Was, a, he was a second generation. So his parents would have bought into it sometime when they were adults. So if you want to talk about brainwashing, it doesn't just happen when we're children. It does very easily happen when you're an adult. Yeah, um, and, you know, I... Uh, also a uh, I'm a third generation so my mother was born in this mm-hmm. cult and I think something interesting too is that adults and children kind of are brainwashed or programmed very differently specifically in this way that adults kind of much more consciously are buying into their programming Mm. And, you know, the way I explain that is kind of like as I was coming up in the children of God and things about me around me didn't make sense. I was asking questions. I was asking why I was acting out. But when I joined the army and I like threw my lot in with I'm going to be a true believer in the army, I would be the first person to shut myself up if I had like a critical complaint or or something that I wanted to bring up or even just the thought this is crazy. You know, I would be the one kind of saying, Daniela, you signed up for this. Daniela, just play the game. Um, and so it, it's it's different to the way that like children and adults are are brought into these groups, too, which is really fascinating. I think perhaps for adults, it might just be a a place of wanting to belong, I guess. It's one of those situations where again tribalism you join a tribe you haven't got a tribe of your own i guess so whatever you're indoctrinated into you're willing to believe it as long as you belong it's kind of like um might be a bit of a bad analogy but social media influences is becoming a really uh big thing and you see people going out of their way to do ridiculous things just to be famous and i guess yeah. that's a part of their tribalism as well or social media cult if you want to phrase it that way yeah and it's it's not a bad analogy I think it's a wonderful analogy I think the whole thought leader thing is kind of in a way can be kind of mini cult leader-esque and just social media in general right you count your followers Mm. and people see you know like before a year ago I was nothing but now I have 70,000 followers on TikTok so that Mm. says to people that I'm someone with something to say, you know, there's like this whole, and, and I actually think that the sort of thought leader life coach space, like gets pretty culty as does the like entrepreneurship and startup space. Um, It's something that I'm like really aware of because I'm all over those spaces, but I see it's like a lot of the same rhetoric, a lot of the same mission focus, the tribe, the community, right? People wanting to change the world. It's, 
it's just all very familiar to the kind of stuff I grew up around. Well, yeah. So I think it all comes down to um, dopamine as well, especially when it comes to likes and clicks and followers, because we live in such a dopamine fueled, especially with, you know, easy access to our phones. Now, as soon as we get on a phone, that's a dopamine hit get on the phone again it's a dopamine hit then we go get easy access to food that's a dopamine hit it's yeah i think look i've had this discussion on my podcast before look it's great that we have easy access to things it really is i'm not saying we shouldn't but at the same time perhaps we have too easy access to things and look what the answer to that is i don't know and because like look we never evolved to have this easily access to things. We were hunter gatherers. We hunted, we hunted for our food and then we ate for the day. That's just the way it was. And now we have such easy access to things that this dopamine pathway we have, it just, it's almost like it doesn't have any one stream meaning anymore. It's just all over the place, if that makes sense. Right. Um, it does make sense. I'm really looking into like cult, like cult membership almost as like a, instead of an addiction, like sometimes people, instead of alcohol, they will get addicted onto group membership. That's interesting. And I, and you know, the children of God specifically recruited during the hippie days was recruiting people that were drugs, alcohol, and called it getting high on Jesus. Um, you know, and I think that exactly what you're saying about like the evolutionary thing and uh, social media and AI and all of these things, it's, you know, at the same time that it has connected the world in closer and closer ways, it's also c- increased isolation, mm. you know, and I look at like in the 70s when if you wanted to isolate an American, you had to kind of take them off to your compound in Texas or Brazil. Like this is my grandfather, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone was watching the same three channels. Everyone's watching the same commercials, same newspapers. So while you can be on completely polarized sides of an issue, you're still sharing the same reality. Mm. But these days where like, you're not even on the same social media, you're not receiving the same news, right? Like you can, and because of AI that is feeding you things like the things you're looking at, this has not only increased isolation, like in our own silos of thought, but it's also made it easier for sort of radical extreme groups to pull people into their radicalization pipeline. So to literally go from like looking at law cap memes to being a white supremacist in 10 or so steps, you know, because the, the AI and just all of these advancements are helping with that. And they're built exactly for what you said. Like they are built to keep us staring at the screen, to give us more dopamine. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason why kind of globally we've seen this like rise in hateful rhetoric and, and polarization, like I, I really believe it has a lot to do with this sort of social media technology factor and the the isolation and the separation that it creates. Yeah, well, there's a reason there's algorithms built around search engines. It's because whatever you search, they eventually build an algorithm to what you detail as 
your liking. So once they have a building block of what you may like, now they have an algorithm. Now they know what to feed towards you, which is there's a, a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. And it's real. It's a really good documentary if um, you're interested in the whole us being on our phones all the time. It's a really interesting documentary. Yeah, I've seen it. No, I've seen it. That's good. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, the whole 70s and drug thing, so that's kind of when the Children of God, uh, when David Berg was still running it. Um, I might be speaking lies here, but I'm not too sure if they used drugs or not to persuade people to come in. No, no. The Children of God did the same thing that the U.S. Army does, which is not let you sleep for 72 hours. Um, <laughs> this is an oft forgotten or or not talked about part of both Army basic training and coming to the children of God. So the children of God's basic MO was like walking the beaches of California, finding these hippies, you know, usually kind of drugged out or easily able to be convinced to come on over to this meeting. And mm. oftentimes, and this is true of many kinds of cult recruiters, they don't even tell you what the meeting's about. The people they're looking for and targeting don't even care. It's just enough that like someone's talking to you and offering you they were literally giving peanut butter sandwiches and like juice, you know, out on the beach and bringing people in. And then it would be kind of this love bomb of like, you're surrounded by hundreds of people that are singing, that are dancing, that are speaking in tongues. And then this prophet guy gets up to speak and this just goes and goes and goes and goes. And they're sort of shocking the system and breaking you down. Mm. Um, but they're doing it all in a way that, you don't really realize what's going on and you definitely think you're part of it. Mm -hmm. um, very fascinatingly, similar effects have been reported from the Eras concert, Taylor <laughs> Swift. Oh, wow. Like people literally come back from it and they're like, it's the best night of my life, but I can barely remember it. And it's because like that you were so like emotionally intensely like putting yourself out there and it was just, going for so long and that one's only about five hours if you stay for the opening shows children of god would do this for days so what you're trying to say um, is people are more enthralled with the idea that taylor swift is on stage rather than <laughs> listening to her music live no it's not even enthralled it's there it's all of these things i mean there's research that shows that we are extra susceptible to suggestion when we chant in crowds right like it puts us in this hypnotic state there's so much um with the taylor swift concert and i think this is similar to like sort of religious conversions so for many people when they go listen to the eras concert they're going back through their their whole life because she's been, you know, singing songs to us for 17 years. So when I'm singing Fearless, I'm thinking about being a 15-year-old just kicked out of a cult and like, what am I going to do? And, you know, like all of these things, right? So people are having this like really intense emotional experience, this really intense physical experience. And there's like this bit of, as you mentioned, sort of awe, mm. where you have your prophet or your God or your dear Dr. Taylor Allison Swift. Um, and altogether, it makes this essentially what people walk away feeling was a transformative religious experience mm. um, in the case of children of God very often. I had no idea that the U.S. military 
did uh, 72 hours of sleep deprivation. I think there's an individual named Matthew Walker who wrote a book, Why We Sleep, who wouldn't, would be very unimpressed with that uh, information. Really good book, by the way. But um, getting back to the children of God, when you were, there's a part in your book where you talk about going out on uh, picnic days where you would go out and then you would see uh, quote unquote regular children, I guess, uh, or as you'd call it, oh, what was it? It was like system, what's the word? Systemites. Yeah, systemites. systemites. Yeah, yeah, systemites, that's the word. Um, systemite children. Um, when you would go out on those days and you'd sort of compare yourself to them and be like, what's their lives like? Looking back on it now, what is uh, the massive difference outside of the obvious? I mean, overall, the way I describe the experience of growing up in Children of God is just like we stood in two straight lines and we never, ever like had spontaneous moments of joy. Mm. Like everything is planned. Um, it took me many, many years to realize that you know we were a workforce and we were being trafficked and really cults are about labor. Um, and so another big business is like, we just didn't, or a big difference is we just didn't get educated and we were working all the time. Hmm. Um, and, but yeah, I, when I go to describe it, I'm like, we had, of course, we are famous as the cult that sort of promoted pedophilia and child abuse. Like there was that, there was physical abuse, right? Very, at a very, very young age, you start getting all kinds of corporal discipline. So there were all of these specifics, you know, educational abuse, medical neglect. But overall, I think like the hardest thing to get over is we just kind of didn't have childhoods because we were just always expected to be these perfect little soldiers in God's army. Um which is, of course, where the line, I was born a soldier comes from, you know, the cover of the book and all that. Mm. Well, when was the first time when you really realized this isn't normal? I mean, I, I very distinctly remember at six years old um, being like, we live behind these walls. Most people don't. And we spend a lot of time talking about why we're good for the way we live or like, you know, like defending it. And I was like, very much questioning it, like starting, I think, to get language for it. And when I was six years old is when I was in a really bad commune with a really bad predator. There's a, a really specific chapter in the book where I go through some really bad abuse. And on that day, it wasn't even we're different. It was just, if this is what you have to do to get to heaven, hell's going to suck. Like, I'm not staying here. Mm. So I knew from like a very young age, like, I don't think I ever felt a part of this group of people. I just always knew that like, I'm getting away from here. Um, but I didn't actually think they were wrong until I was 14. And I was watching people praising God on the attacks of 9-11. And then hearing the term religious extremists for the first time and had the thought of like, 
there is an extreme version. Yeah. And like, maybe it's not just me. Like maybe these people are wrong. Not just, I don't fit, but like, maybe we're the bad guys. Like maybe, maybe they've taken an ideology too far. Yeah, exactly. Like if, if what's happening here on the screen, we're calling religious extremism, then I kind of have thoughts about who we are, you know, as we're praising God over the deaths. Mm. Um, you know, the only other people I've heard about cheering on 9-11 were extremist Muslims mm. and, you know, extremist us. Mm. So. I was curious about these uh, books that you were given in the cult that you were always told to read because they were the word of God and, but they were actually, which was kind of funny because they were written by people within the cult, which is, yeah, it's a bit weird. But anyway, I decided to Google some of them. And I said, I was about to say, oh no, I hope you didn't Google. Yeah, yeah, I did. It was the only way I could kind of find them. <laughs> um, you couldn't find them? What's that? Yeah, not not the full, not the full books, but even on Google, they wouldn't even give the full books, kind of like just like the front cover. And, mm. you know, you had... um by Moses, David, by Moses, this individual. And what, why was everyone, or should I say the uncles called Moses? What's with Moses? Why Moses? So, so Moses, so our prophet, like David Berg, he mm. renamed himself Moses David. Oh, wow. Uh, so, cause he had this whole analogy of like, I was called by God, you know, he, like his burning bush moment. Mm -hmm. And so he gave himself a bunch of names, but it wasn't all the uncles. Those were just all written by him. That were he, all written this by man, him. this man wrote over 300,000 pages of hot garbage. Jesus. in his life yes um and then you know there's two really specific documents and so it starts off with like all books were banned right we didn't read anything that was not the king james bible or from the children of god mm -hmm. so literally everything came through that filter um my stepfather the man who raised me was actually one of the artists that would draw so there would be all the adult publications that were just you know printed out kind of like black and white magazines of just this man talking and supposedly god speaking through him and then they would make like kids kids versions of that kids comics and so that's what we grew up reading and then, you know, specifically why nobody has a problem putting children of God in the cult category was because then they go on to produce what has been called the worst cult artifact of all times, which is a 762 page book called the Davidito book, which was David Berg's experiment of raising what he called sexually liberated children. And it's uh. just basically a how-to pedophilia book and this was widely disseminated and followed of course because this is what your guru is saying and the other document as we recover from that one um and you know both of these are kind of integral in the story was this magazine they made for us called heaven's girl and it was like this kid's comic of fighting for god in the end time and 
it's, you know, of course, this 13 year old girl, very lightly clothed, uh, doing all of these, you know, fighting the Antichrist. And there's like a specific scene where she is being assaulted by multiple people. And she is witnessing to her attackers and teaching them about the Lord. And this is kind of, not kind of, this was literally what we were programmed to do. Like as children, this is the game we would play, would be Heaven's Girl. And, you know, everyone wants to be Heaven's Girl for the day. Um, So even to the point where in my book, when I'm in basic training, I'm like having flashbacks to, you know, being a child, playing Mm. Heaven's Girl, running through the woods away from the Antichrist and all the crazy stuff that happened. Um, But, you know, the 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 magazines that they produced bring us back to this very interesting discussion that we were having earlier of like the brainwashing and like what do people know and what do people not know because you know to this day people will try to say we were brainwashed he had us under control we didn't know what we were doing but they all read that literature you know, that's a, that's kind of like a really hard sticking point. It's like, you all read this stuff. So it's, it's like many groups that try to say like, oh, it was just one bad apple. Like it was just our leader who like went bad, but it's like, no, this, all of this stuff was being disseminated to all of you Mm. and you didn't, you know, have a, have an issue with it. Yeah. David Berg, he was definitely look the piece of crap of the group but then like he he fed this to all the other adults in the group and they lived by it so yes so whether they like it or not they were also the piece of crap like they may have said oh no we'll brainwash no you you knew exactly what you were doing i mean look i'm a father well and this is a you know this is an interesting argument that i i kind of make between the lines in the book between the sex cult where you have the really, really bad uncles. And then you have what I call the good uncles who are the ones that aren't beating us and assaulting us and like doing the horrible things, but they're mm-hmm. still there. They're still part of the system. They're right? like, happen. my stepfather is still in the background when I get drug passed by a known pedophile and he doesn't stop him. Right. And when we look at the military, You know, it's really interesting where it's like, so the military half of my book really also takes on the sexual violence of the military and like the reality for the daughters of America when we disappear behind the high commune walls of the Department of Defense. And what we go through is, in my opinion, very similar. And it's not just my opinion. We just had a survey come out saying 44% of American women have been assaulted almost half now for and you mean 44 percent within america or within the united states military no of women who've served in the military okay yeah have been assaulted and this is by their peers to be clear um and it's you know every time something comes out like this this is the worst number but just every time they try to say Oh, it's the bad ones. Oh, it's just, you know, we can't help it. But where are the good guys? Why are they not speaking up? Why are they not saying this is unacceptable? 
you know, and I, I really think it's a similar thing. Not again, not saying like the military is a cult, but like when you are supporting this system with your whole life, it's really hard to be critical of the system because you've also like benefited from it. I think um, what opened me up a lot to your experience was sort of like, I'm a father now and I could never imagine letting my children or go through something like that. Um, so it's like when you spoke about your mother in the book, but then it's a, a lot of the time she wouldn't be your mother. She'd be auntie. What was her name? Christy. Uh, yeah. Auntie Christy. That made me really sad. That made me really, really sad. Um, it, it, but then, you know, it, it, I was happy when she taught you to read. It's, it's such a conflicting time in your book where, you know, when you think of a mum, you think of someone who's always going to be there and protect you kind of thing. But again, she like the rest of them, she was so indoctrinated by this cult that even though she knew it was happening, she wasn't stopping it. It just yeah. blew my mind. You know, like, you know, when you were little and if your parents like took you out to something special, like you were going to see a show with a bunch of people and like they were stricter with you than they normally were. Yeah. Because you are like, like being loud and your parents are getting stressed out and they're trying to keep you quiet because everybody else is looking. And then you go to a restaurant afterwards and you're stressed out and your parents are stressed out. I felt, I feel like that was our life all the time where it was like, my mother is this really nice, wonderful, loving mom. But anytime we're around anyone else from the community, which is all the time, it's about being perfect children and perfect parents, not about like existing and having a relationship. Mm. And so it's kind of like, you're just always on show and you're always expected to be perfect. And for the parents, it's, I mean, it's done by design because they're trying to destroy that natural bond between parents and children. Um, and so if you're, if you're the one having to police your children all the time, to fit into this group it's also going to like affect your relationship and and how you feel about them if that makes sense mm. so when did you eventually leave the children of god now known as the family so i was 15 years old this is where my mom really did help me out um i kind of after that day when i was 14 and i decided i don't want to be here and also I'm not going to make it till 18. Um, very specifically at 16, I would become an adult in the cult, which has a lot of implications in a sex cult Pregnancy that basically. doesn't believe in birth control. Yes. Um, and, you know, I had sort of seen with my mom, you know, she, even if she'd wanted to, she didn't have a chance to go anywhere because she had so many children. So I sort of launched a campaign to get myself excommunicated um which by the time I was 15 I was almost 16 and I snuck out of the commune and went and had unappreciated and unallowed fellowship 
with an outsider. Um, and, you know, went and hooked up with this Mexican boy that I had met. We were living in Mexico at the time. And then I got caught. And then I was like, absolutely had to be gone. So any um, communication with the outside world was completely a no-no, even even on picnic days? Like for sure, one-on-one. Like any, you know, so like I went and actually had sex with an outsider, which was your number one rule that you couldn't do but even if i had just snuck out of the house to go have a conversation with an outside boy that would have been absolutely huge amounts of trouble as well i don't think i ever went anywhere by myself until i was kicked out of the group at almost 16 that would be like the first time i existed in public alone would be at 16 um or probably when I was walking through this park in the middle of the night to go see this boy. Um, but, you know, what, and why I say my mom helped me is because, okay, so they were going to excommunicate me. But then they realized kind of that my family is important. I was a little bit famous. Like, this could be a, essentially a PR disaster. And so they kind of switched and started putting all the pressure on me to convert and do penance and, and get to stay and kind of go somewhere new and start over again. And I was, I was scared of the outside world. Like as much as I wanted to, it's also very scary when you're 15 years old to lose everything, you know? And so I was wavering a little bit. Um, and my mom just, took me on a walk outside the commune and was like, Daniela, go, just go. Like we found a place for you, go, get out now. Um, You know, and it took her another decade to get herself out, but I very much appreciated that she uh, pushed me over the edge on that decision. There was a part in your book where um, someone before the age of, 16 15 they get pregnant and david berg wasn't happy about this and then now i'm paraphrasing here but what he said was basically only lay with those who haven't bled yet and that even just saying that strikes me so deeply in my core and it yeah i almost i almost want to cry over it it is so painful it is what yeah so that was my mom what those got pregnant yeah yes and and basically when you know they created this this supposed group of loving jesus and free love and hippies and when children came into it they just extended this right well if god's love is god's love then it should apply to children and it, it was this very like free for all obviously very abusive when my mom turns up 14 and pregnant and not just 14 and pregnant, but from a 39 year old man who worked for her dad um, was like a year or two older than her dad. And like, they ran the money for the cults. And that was when Berg kind of realized like, Oh, I can't have a bunch of pregnant teenagers because that's evidence And so that became his, you know, what you said, where it's, you know, once the girls get their periods, now you can't touch them again until they're 16. But anything before that, 
it was it was bad. It was a, a not a good place to grow up. And uh. even after they put a lot of rules supposedly about protecting the children, um, I still grew up in a, in a pretty bad. Well, I mean, I think it's kind of ludicrous for anyone to think that just telling the pedophiles that the rules had changed, like was going to change things. Um, But this is also like, this is one of the common things that you see with cults is the way people will tell the narrative, especially people who joined and then survived will say, yes, okay, it it got bad. Right. Like with the obvious cults, with the Jonestowns, with the Children of Gods, with the Heaven's Gates, Waco, Branch Davidians, they'll say, yes, it got bad. But in the beginning, it was good. You know, in the beginning, they will say the Children of God was about love, faith and Jesus. In the beginning, they will say Nexium was just a self-help group. And it's like, no, in the beginning, Children of God was started by a 50 year old failed alcoholic pedophile who liked to play power games with people, right? Same with Keith Venere, who started Nexium, right? Like, it, the part of the con was the fact that they got you to think it was this good group about love and faith in Jesus in the first place. Because, um, because and the thing about cult leaders individually, when we study them, we can see, like, they're just trying to build anything with a following, they just do it and do it and do it until they find the thing that hits. Um, and and that's what he did. Because David Burke, he was originally a preacher, right? Yeah. So he was out of like 1930s evangelical revivalist tradition in America. Like his mother was a big Miami preacher that would like pack out these houses of people, you know, praying in tongues and getting saved. And then he basically just kept getting kicked out of different denominations because he was an alcoholic sociopath who liked to play power games with people. Mm. Um, But in his eventual story, it was just because he had too many revelations from God that were, you know, too hard for the churches to follow. But that's an interesting thing too about children of God and another way that people think it's so different is because the focus is on the sex stuff and how crazy it got but all he did is take regular conservative evangelical Christianity and like flip control of sex so instead of an iron control on purity culture it was an iron control on forced polyamory but in pretty much almost every other way like the beliefs that we shared religiously, not that much more extreme than a lot of evangelicals here in America. With that being said, after everything you've been through in terms of children of God, the the military, where is your relationship? Now, look, I'm not religious, but I'm not atheist. I'm very much in between, but I am also a reader of Richard Dawkins. I just purely say I don't know because I think to say you know you got to have evidence and then to not know 100% you got to have some sort of evidence to me I would rather just say I don't know but it doesn't mean I live my life by any supreme being either but it brings me to my right. question of where is your relationship with 
this potential God now after everything that you've been through, especially since you were such a religious follower when you were younger? So I would say that like you, I don't know. But the extra thing I would say is I also don't care. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is, like, I, I honestly think I was just born a questioning atheist child. And I also think that some people kind of have a need to understand more about the spiritual world or where we came from or where we go. And one of the reasons I think this is true is because my child is this way, <laughs> but I was never this way. Like I just don't, there's enough stuff on earth for me to worry about. There's enough books for me to read. I just, it has never really, the God question has never really intrigued me. So that's one is I just don't think like, maybe I just don't need that. But the other thing is, I, I just get stuck with like, which one would I choose? And so part of, for me, part of the damage of children of God was it took away for some of us, our ability to be religious because short of being knocked off my horse on the road to Damascus and like having a religious experience, I just have no idea which ones I would choose. Um, and then I just got so into studying humans and groups and connections and myth and story and seeing patterns that to me, it like it either all just came from nothing or it all just came from something. But I kind of come back to this. Have you ever heard the of the guy who did the hypothesis that if God doesn't exist, so what? But if he does exist, I better believe in him. Yeah, it, it, there's yeah. a specific name for this hypothesis. It's... And mine is basically the opposite. Mine is that like, if God doesn't exist, I'm cool. And if the other guys are right, and God does exist, and he still punishes me after everything I suffered in his name, then God's a jerk. And I shouldn't have believed in that guy anyway. Well, <laughs> you mentioned God. Um, I think it was I think it was a Richard Dawkins quote, it might have been Christopher Hitchens, is, well, aren't you lucky you're born in the right one, which is exactly the, the religious aspect, whether you're Christian or Catholic or Muslim or Sikh or Buddhism or whichever one you choose, you know, if you worship the old Nordic gods or Zeus or yeah. whomever it is, aren't yeah. you lucky you're born in the right religion to be going to the heaven that exists and the others don't? Or even, what's his name? Um, he was the guy that went off at the Oscars or whatever. But he says, I only believe in one less God than you. You know, it's like there's 3,000 known gods. You only believe in one God, right? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, so I only believe in one less than you. Because you don't believe in the other 2,900 gods. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, it's... It's interesting. I yeah. Was your sad? It's I, I don't even know what to tell my daughter sometimes when she asks questions because I'm just like, I don't know, you know, it about religion in general or just uh life in yeah. general. Yeah. I mean like specifically religion. Hmm. You know, she 
feels like we're the only ones that aren't religious. And mm-hmm. so in that way, you know, it's like, but she also has this desire to to question like metaphysical things. Mm-hmm. Um, and both my spouse and I are very not that way. So it's interesting. I'll, I'll say this. I think uh, critical thinking is extremely important. I don't think I had this conversation with this, uh, former Scientologist that came on my podcast, the critical thinking is very important. I don't think indoctrination is important. I think if you give your child all the tools of, hey, here's science, here's religion, here's everything. You go off and do whatever research you need to do, look up this, look up that, whatever sticks with you, that's that's your life. That that that's what you yeah. choose. That's what you choose now. But I don't think saying, hey, this thing right here is what you believe. And if you don't believe it, well, guess what? You're going to go to this burning inferno called hell, <laughs> which which to me, and I do agree with um, Richard Dawkins on this, is mental abuse. If you're, it if, is. If, if you're threatening someone, especially a child, mm-hmm. of eternal torture, eternal is a really long time forever, mm-hmm. um, of torture. What? If you don't follow and this... this is... If you don't follow this biblical work that may or may not be true. Right. And it, it, you know, this black and white thinking in general is kind of what, what we can see as very culty, but just this whole concept of religious abuse is just kind of starting to be talked about that, like a lot of the major religions are just traumatizing for young children to understand. Like, like, like they don't have to experience specific abuse inside the religion to be traumatized by the religion. And this, like, I look at this similarly for soldiers. Like when we think about PTSD and, and war and trauma, we always think about the war part, but like, you were broken down, reprogrammed, isolated from the world for months, right? Like, and trained to kill other people. Like that in and of itself produces certain kinds of trauma. And it's just like something we don't really look at and don't really see. Um, That's why it was so interesting in, in my book. Actually, my editor was the one that pointed out, she's like, you're having PTSD flashbacks in basic training it's like yep the trauma of basic training is triggering you know my past complex trauma but like I didn't need additional war trauma Mm. to to have that stuff wake up it was like the process itself is so jarring and you know by design but nobody likes it when you talk about it point out the programming i had a conversation with a friend of mine he's um very much a christian uh very devout christian and um i said to him i i personally think if god does exist everyone has it wrong i think every religion probably has it wrong i personally think if he or she or whatever this spiritual being is personally if this thing exists doesn't necessarily care what we do with our lives as long as we are good to one another as long as we have fulfilled our lives like look as a parent when I look at my child I would just want him to be happy and have a good life and fulfill whatever dreams and 
desires he has. And that'll make me proud. And personally, I think if a God does exist, that's all that God would want, right? I mean, why create something at all if you only want that thing to live for you? That to me just seems yeah. like a commodity. It's something that you don't but want. Even, but even this idea that you just expressed is kind of a new idea. This idea that children should be raised to just be who they want to be. Um, you know, and internationally, I believe, uh, family law comes out of properly property law. Mm. Um, and there are just, you know, like, it's what it's wonderful. I agree with you. Like I'm the same way with my kid. I like, I want her to grow up to be happy. I don't really care what form that is, mm -hmm. but there are, I feel like so many parents that are, you know, like force, try to force their children into these molds of be the perfect, you know, X a lot of times has to do with religion, but sometimes not. Um, yeah. So how did the military come into your story? I'm thinking about you leaving the cold and trying to find direction. Why the military and how? Yeah, this was the hardest chapter to write because I had to stop lying to myself. <laughs> um, That's the hardest part. You know, yeah. So I spent six years kind of in the real world in between the cult and the military. And in those six years, I was a super student. And otherwise, I feel like I was very much floundering and, you know, socially completely isolated, like really only falling prey to the same kind of people over and over again. Um, so unsurprisingly, I fell into a rather toxic relationship in college as a young, young, you know, 19 year old. Um, and I'm not going to give it away because you haven't gotten to the end of the book, but trust me when I say I wanted divorce, I was not wrong. He was the bad guy. <laughs> um, but I, he joined the military and I kind of ended up in this situation where I was like, either I'm going to end up trailing him as his wife who teaches English. And I was just already starting to see that he was kind of putting me in this, in this box a little bit. I was like, or I'm going to join the military myself. And you know, have this career along next to him. And I gave myself all of these really good reasons at the time. And now when I look back, I think I joined the military for all of the reasons my grandfather joined a cult in the 70s, which is all the stuff we talked about. It's like I need community. I needed, I don't even know what I would have done if I had just graduated college on my own and like, been tossed out into the world right like I just didn't know anything and so I think Mary as kind of like a path that is designed for you just seemed very appealing to me at the time you needed to belong to something yeah yeah mm -hmm. and I knew I would be good at it like <laughs> on the you know how the prologue of the book starts off in basic training and holding this really heavy duffel above my head saying mm. I think I just joined another cult 
And I swear that wasn't like a bad thing. I was just like, oh, I'm going to be better at this than these kids because Mm -hmm. like I know how to do this. And we actually see a, a really big trend of children from very kind of high demand religious backgrounds going into the military and doing very well. Um, and we also see this in Prince Harry's book, Spare, which I contend that the royal family is very much a cult. And <laughs> Prince Harry goes from, you know, royal family into army. Like when you've never been allowed to be an individual, it's not as hard to learn to be a soldier than when you've been raised the way like your child and my child are being raised to like live in their own individuality. Yeah, I I somewhat agree with you on that. I mean, whenever I see the royal family on TV and I just see them all glamoured up with the golden interior of their house or whatever they're living in and they just got that that fake smile and that fake wave and everyone's clapping and it yeah it, it seems very yeah. cultish to me like look it's a part it was of- it was the oprah interview when i saw the megan and harry oprah interview i was like oh i saw a whole different interview than people who have not been in a cult mm. um and that's when i started watching and actually you started with my first rule of cults which was you're never in a cult and then I say, watching the Harry Meghan saga taught me the second rule of cults, which is the cult will forgive any sin except the sin of leaving. Hmm. When, I say, when I say any sin, I usually say <laughs> Prince Andrew. Hmm. Yeah. You know, like you can you can do a lot and get over it. Um, but as soon as you say I'm out, they throw you to the wolves. Um so there's there's just some interesting parallels. And there's actually a thing called a total institution, which is, I think, uh, academics answer to not having to call the military and other things like this a cult, which is so a total institution is when you live and work with like situated people removed from the outside world with some sort of formal overlay. And in the definition very large rich people's households is one of the like one of the examples you know so it's like military mental hospital uh you know convent cult royal family Mm. um and like just the the removal from the world the like situated people and and like just the different elements it changes group behavior so much Mm. um and so actually my argument is not that the military is a cult but it's that when a unit is activated and goes away to training or to war they are going to have a cultic experience and looking at it through that lens teaches us a lot in my opinion Mm. about soldier problems that we we definitely haven't solved yet Mm. so going into the military uh, you obviously didn't really have a plan. You were just kind of following, as you said, your ex-partner. Um, now, during your military career, did a plan kind of evolve? So, I mean, I made a plan once I decided to join. And my plan was that I was going to be an intelligence officer, which was very competitive, which also meant I I had to be a very, very good like runner and fit soldier. 
Um, again, fortunately for me, I came from a childhood where you just have to be perfect and win no matter what. So I just flung myself at it and was a really fast runner. Um, but then you just kind of get slotted into the system where you're a lieutenant. And so really the only part of my career I had control over was competing hard to get the branch I wanted, at which point you're just kind of sucked up into the system and you go. Um, so I ended up being an aviation intelligence officer um, and going to Afghanistan twice. What was your, now you say um, being deployed is like being in a cult. Now, how how are you comparing the two? I'm I'm trying to make uh, the con- the connection. Could you uh, sort of dig into that a little more? Because obviously, you you, yeah. as you said you went to Afghanistan twice, so you would know a lot more or way more. Than yeah. I would. So I mean, landing in Afghanistan was what I thought my trigger was of trauma because all of a sudden here I am again behind these high commune walls that I cannot leave um, with a large, large chance of sexual violence towards me. But the reason I say it's like a cult, so I have these 10 things that make up a cult. And the military, when you're back home, fits about six of them. Just like you have a, you know, you have a senior leader, you have a kind of worldview, you have a mission, Um, You have your own distinguishable language. You have uh, different things. But then you, as soon as you deploy, now you are held separate from the world, which we talked about. This is important. Now you are the one thing that any group, if you call any group a cult, they will say, nah, you're free to leave anytime. But now you are not free to leave. I mean, Arguably, being in the military, you're not free to leave ever, but definitely when you are deployed, what in cult language, what we call exit costs, like the things in your life that you will lose if you choose to leave this group are the highest they could possibly be. I mean, the only way out of a deployment you don't want to be on is death or the end of your career. So, um, and you are exploitation of labor is a big part of a cult, which I argue when you are activated 365 days without a day off, your labor is being exploited, even though you are being paid. Um, and the, the final thing, which is the most important, uh, the step 10 of the cult is ends justifies the means mentality. And I definitely think we activate that as soon as we go to war. And what do you mean by the ends justify the means? Do you mean the outcomes of the mission at hand? Yeah, the we will do anything if we think we are winning the mission, or we will we will do things that objectively would make us the bad guys, but we won't even realize that because we are the good guys. And that's not just military; that's just the cult in general, correct? Like uh... that is cults yes so so in my sort of argument there's kind of three phases to a cult and when you are in your end stage you're in full-on ends justifies the means you know people on jim jones's team would help him fake miracle healings 
and they believed they were doing it for a good reason. You know, people in Theranos, the fake blood testing company, would help her fake test results, and they thought they were doing it for the mission. Mm. Have you have you um seen the document uh the document? Oh, it's not. It's kind of a documentary. Uh, Purdue. It was basically. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's Purdue. It was basically like a pharmacist that invented a um a painkiller that they said was non addictive, and then covered that all up i sometimes i think that the lengths will go to in um pain management medical science is a bit cultish as well personally yeah uh, i'm just looking into well, it very much recently it's it's, it's oh quite, i i agree um i think so first of all that whole concept of the total institution we talked about i think hospitals fit that um, and honestly, I think academia kind of fits that too. But like, if you're a hospital personnel, you essentially live there. Like you sleep at home, but you live there and your whole like world is in this building. And I think in like people can, I have this popular TikTok channel where I teach people about cults and people are like, so medicine all, all the time. Um, but I was just watching, there's a new documentary about Jewel, which was the vape smoking thing. Uh, and it's such a good example because they vape? start the company. Yes, big vape. Mm. They start the company because they want to help people quit smoking, right? They want to make smoking less damaging. But eventually what they do is they just make millions of people start vaping. And but there's there's this turning point where they realize what's happening. They realize they just made a a wildfire marketing campaign about smoking for young people. Mm. But still, the people at the company are going. They're like, it worked for me, and I know our mission's good, so we're gonna do it anyways. And this is like this is ends justifies the means mentality. Like when yeah. you're you're telling yourself that advertising smoking to twelve year olds is okay because it's the mission, you mm. know, because you're pursuing the mission. Yeah, I've I have started watching that. I'm, I think I'm roughly twenty minutes in, and from what I got with the start of it, it seemed with adults, it seemed to help with the whole cigarette yeah. addiction thing. But the problem is yeah. vaping. It looks cool, so kids are like, oh. Now I want to vape. And because it didn't, because it was so new, it didn't really have a handle on it. So kids were getting mm -hmm. to it very easily. Mm -hmm. And now kids are going to the hospital with popcorn lung and all different kinds mm -hmm. of uh, mm -hmm. uh, respiratory issues. And like, it's really interesting the way the documentary is done because it shows you how like, because they don't think of themselves as this tobacco company because they think of themselves as solving this problem they basically like run themselves into all this trouble and like have these terrible effects and this is like to me it's such a good analogy of a cult because that's kind of how it goes it's like all of these people join this mission that they think they're doing something i mean People who joined the children of God still 50 years later, they think they devoted their life to Jesus and did missionary work around the world. That's what mm -hmm. they think they did. They do not understand that they were part of a giant child abuse and child trafficking ring. Um, 
because they're like, here's the problem I was focused on, right? This was the mission. And they just kind of put their blinders on. And it's kind of this, how good people build bad things or something, you know? Well, the whole cigarette smoking thing is crazy. I mean, if you go back to, you know, 1950s, 40s, even early 60s, they were promoting it as like an in-between meal, uh, in-between thing you could have between meals or meal replacements as uh, losing weight. And they were pushing it as it doesn't cause cancer. And Like, look, don't get me wrong. Yeah. We, we didn't really have the research science that we do now, but in through the 40s, 50s and 60s, I'm, I don't know. To me, it just seems like surely we could have put two and two together. I mean, if, you could even take alcohol as a, a cult thing. I mean, look, I'm not a drinker myself. Um, if other people choose to drink, that's up to them. But I've noticed in social situations where if I'm not drinking, I'm considered the weird one. I'm considered the outsider. But it's kind of like, I just don't want to drink. Oh, yeah, you're weird. Why, why are you not having it? Especially um, in Australia where, you know, just, you know, ha- having a beer, mate, come on. <laughs> that's just, that's that's the way it is here. But yeah, you're very much considered the outsider if you're not drinking in a social situation. And I've always found that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's very much true here in the US as well. I think like the culture has become... I, I describe it as like in the 90s, friends, they were at a coffee house. And then in How I Met Your Mother, they were at a bar. That's that's the shift that America has made. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. like social events, you will always be drinking and, and you're the one that stands out if you're not. Mm. Um, and pe- people definitely try to like pressure people. And it's, it's interesting. Mm. I mean, um, even that thing we were talking about where like group behavior can be almost like a pass on addiction. Um, I do remember thinking that joining the army would help me quit smoking. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, <laughs> which, of course, is hilarious because military is huge smoking culture. Well, yeah, the group mentality is definitely a thing. I mean, um, I, I'm not a drinker myself, but um, I grew up around people who drank like a my older brother he enjoyed a drink uh so did my mom so did uh uh the guy she was with um they used used to drink heavily but and i think what deterred me from that honestly was i was very visually um visually aware of the dangers of alcohol due to growing up around its negativity like uh, my childhood, I saw a lot of negativity with alcohol. So, and I could kind of connect the dots. So I, I always thought to myself, well, if this equals this, I do not want this at all. Whereas if you have individuals that are kind of growing up, I guess, with both, in your case, you've got the good uncles and the bad uncles, they might say, well, you know, there's this really bad side, but then you've got this other side, which isn't so bad. You know what I mean? So maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's the ground. Um where people get indoctrinated into cults or this alcohol quote-unquote cult I guess um yeah well even as you say that like it's never occurred to me to think about it this way but like I grew up with no negative experiences of alcohol that I witnessed because nobody drank really like they were have very regulated drinking in the children of God 
Um, although they did make us like read these trauma stories of like people before they joined or stuff. But like, I, I think for many of us, like we grew up with no exposure to it. And so then we get into the outside world and people would just lose themselves to like drinking or, or drugs or something. So it's like, well, we have all these, this trauma, but then also we've just had no exposure to it. So we don't have like positive really or negative stories. Mm. Um, but I very much like you had watched some of my siblings kind of not be able to keep control of their lives. And so I stayed very, like very controlled for a very long time. Mm. Because I was worried about, you know, what I would do. Being coming from uh, a cult like the Children of God and then coming from the military, is there something you've taken away in a positive aspect that you apply to your life today? Perhaps a strict, strict not strict lifestyle, but a, a focused, I guess is the better word, a focused lifestyle. Um, I mean, there, there's so many benefits, I would say, you know, there's almost as many benefits as hardships. Like I can relate to, I feel like just about everyone these days because I could relate to no one. And then I had to learn how to do it. Um, you know, I speak three languages, like I'm good at moving about the globe. I have friends all over the world and and, and then I would say the military, like, not only gave me, like, discipline, focus, the knowledge that I can do pretty much anything I want, um, but also it helped me, I think, like, work out some of my traumas in some kind of healthy ways, like, to grow up in a constant state of fear and PTSD-causing events, and then go on to be an intelligence officer who's the one in charge of briefing everybody about, like, what the bad guy's going to do, um, in many ways allowed me to, like, you know, work different things out. Um, and then, of course, the fact that I was also in the military means that I do get pretty excellent health care and payments from the government for the parts of me they broke, um, which I don't get from the cult, so I like that from the military as well. When I was um, looking up the children of God, I was actually very surprised that it's still around at all, but just known as the family now. And it's ran by an individual called Karen Zerby. And I looked into her a little bit. Now, obviously she's, well, my guess is she's running it better than David Berg did, but he didn't really set the bar very high. Now what's, interesting to me is the reason it's still around is she's had accusations of child abuse and you know she had a son called uh, i think his name was richard or something um yes now this story gets really dark really quick um mm -hmm. i'm guessing you you might know karen from your experience being in the children of god because she she's in her seventies now, so she was in the Children of God in its uh, early days. Right. Yeah, I never knew her personally, but you know, we all grew up with the stories of them. Hmm. And the son, her son, who, with what happens, what you're about to talk about, he was the subject of the Davidito book, the one I called the 
yeah. pedophilia mm-hmm. manual. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Karen Zerbe, not accused of sexual assault, photographic evidence of sexually assaulting her own child printed for all of their followers. Yeah. Yeah. So she was, what I say about Karen Zerbe is she was just a different brand of crazy. Um, and one of the things the children of God did really well was rebrand themselves. And they went from being known as this massive sex cult in the eighties to performing at the white house twice in the nineties. And they still twice. And they still exist today. My grandfather still runs the money. They still bring in about a million dollars a year. Um, they fortunately they are about an anemic fourteen hundred people. They mostly only exist online. I think there's still some communes in Thailand. Um, you know, we had a big presence in Australia too. Australia is actually one of the countries that tried to help the children. Ultimately failed, but yeah, at I'm, least tried. I'm glad I missed that. Um, how does a leadership of a country allow a fourth, as we know, a former sex cult perform at their colony. I guess you could say colony is probably the wrong word, but it's the only way I can come up with my, how could they allow something like that? That just seems ridiculous to me. I wouldn't even have them in my own house, I, but alone in my own leadership. People try to say that just because it was pre-internet maybe they didn't know and I just like you don't get in front of the president of the United States without some serious connections yeah but, they but this in the cults 90s. are always trying to get political power like yeah but like the national prayer breakfast that every president attends is run by a cult you know like it cults are very uh, Donald Trump spoke at the Moonies convention in 2021. Like these cults, some of these major cults are very plugged into political power. And I would not be surprised if certain people were getting certain favors for allowing like the children of God to be connected to politics at that time. Okay. And what it's is... so messy, so messy. What is your opinion of Karen Zerbe and the fact that this cult is still around at all, even after we know what has happened in the past with just because they've changed their name doesn't mean they've really yeah, changed their they, idea. So a big part of why I call them the children of God in my book. And now when we're talking like they have not been called the children of God since before I was born. They've been the family since before I was born, but I call them the children of God because they didn't change and they don't get to just rebrand and ride off into the sunset. Like they didn't change. They tried to change, but it was never, I feel like it's very similar to how like the Mormons gave up polygamy because they were forced to but they still believe it ideologically. And so you still, if you don't have to look very far to find like a lot of like markers and damages of those beliefs still in modern Mormonism. And that is the same, you know, first of all, it took them 40 years to say that anything that David Burke said was wrong. Um, And then they only did it because they had to 
but we have had our suicide rates compared to Holocaust survivors' suicide rates, and they still will not admit they did anything wrong. They are still out there selling videos of us that they exploited us for and never paid us for. Like they, they did not reform. They are not sorry. They're still just doing the same things. What do you mean they're selling videos of you? Oh, the, the children of God basically went from being a sex cult to being a child entertainment production group. Oh God. And so I grew up, I was like little apocalypse Lindsay Lohan. And in fact, I can send you as a little treat for your listeners, a video of me at 10 years old and six other white children wrapping apocalypse Bible verses in the middle of Rio, Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. um, um... So they still like I have written them many times and asked them to cease and desist from using my image that they were never given permission and they just don't care. Yeah, this is just another reason why I'm surprised such a cult could be around. Like, look, just because you've changed a little, this individual, Karen Zerby, she was around for David Berg and she would have allowed all that sexual and physical abuse to happen towards children. And she would have gone along with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. To me, isn't that kind of, uh, what do you call an individual that didn't commit the crime, but they enabler. Yeah. Like, basically the enabler there is a proper word for it it's like aiding and abetting aiding and abetting like that's Mm. and there is prison time for that but she has served as far as my knowledge goes zero nobody has served there have been two convictions and all of the children of god there have been two convictions and that is because scotland took away statute of limitations on sex crimes for children and so two people went and were able to put their abusers in jail. Um, One reason that the Children of God is still around and one reason why we are so unlikely to get justice is because, number one, it happened all over the world. And number two, we mostly didn't know their legal names because we called them uncle so-and-so and and auntie so-and-so. So the my abuser in the first part of the book I happen to know his name because he's very famous, but that's the only legal name I know pretty much of anyone who abused me while I was in the children of God. So even if I wanted to go against people, you know, where, where would we even start? Yeah. You're basically saying, Oh, he, he's a guy that looks like this. All right. There's probably about a hundred people that may look like that but you don't have mm-hmm. his name either so it's just throwing a needle in the haystack mixing up the haystack and then trying to find the needle again it's just it, yeah it, it, there's good. not there's not probably going to be justice for us coming out of that corner unfortunately but no. you know i guess this is part of why i do what i do because just helping people to understand um people really really think that extremism is a line in the sand and it's really obvious and they'll walk away Mm. like people people truly truly believe that when their guru says it's okay to have sex with children 
they will walk away. And I'm from the 10,000 people that didn't. Actually, my grandma did. But um, I'm from the child that she wasn't able to get out. And so, like, this, this is why I spend so much of my time breaking down. You know, if you say a cult, everyone thinks you know what you're talking about. But if you talk about, like, a specific tactic, you know, that a cult will do, right? Like, cult leaders are always trying to blur the edges of their expertise. You know, you can see that tactic and you can see other leaders doing that or other groups doing that. And you can, like, as they say in the military, go to the left of the boom. Um, you know, really, really the only people that decide when something is a cult is the media and it's when it goes like really bad and meanwhile I'm like there's so much time that it takes to get there and people get so far in that I think if you can help people like recognize the tactics and recognize the red flags in these gurus and leaders then like that's the best thing you can do to get people away yeah, if there was ever a cult, it's a, I think it's definitely mainstream media. Mainstream media, they definitely, well, every mainstream media has their um, has a a big bias. I think personally, what this is what I do when you're looking for an answer on a topic or a question, or you sort of searching for an opinion on a topic. I guess do do your own research. Like do do your own research. Look at both sides. Don't just look at one side and say, that's my opinion now. Look at both sides. Look at the arguments and draw your own conclusion. To me, I think that's the best way to have an opinionated outcome rather than just yeah. listening to one individual talk on one side of the shelf and say, yeah, now that's my opinion. That's uh, To me, that just, yeah. it's like blinding yourself. But also, even in doing your own research, I think there's like an important aspect of save some tiny percentage of room for the idea that you could be wrong. Always, even always, always, like even on the beliefs you hold most dear, because you know I in intelligence the question that you don't know to ask is the question that gets you, right? Like that's where we call this the dark quadrant of intelligence. So like Pearl Harbor, they've made a million media things about that. And they always talk about like the intelligence failure was that the Americans lost the Japanese fleet. But actually the intelligence failure was that the Americans had no idea that the Japanese had the capacity to reach Hawaii. So, like, they couldn't have solved for that, right? So it's like, if you think, my other really good example is Pizzagate. Are you familiar with what that was no, in no. the U.S.? No. Okay, so Pizzagate was this scandal during the Trump administration that said that Democrats were sex trafficking children and to high-level officials in Washington, D.C., out of this very specific pizza shop. And eventually, somebody went and stormed this pizza shop with a gun um, to rescue the children out of the basement. And it turned out this restaurant didn't even have a basement, right? <laughs> um, 
So why I'm telling you about Pizzagate is because I have these lists of what makes you a good group. And my rule number one is don't rape the children. Like, I believe very strongly in this, right? I think this is a super solid idea. And I don't know how I could be wrong about that. You're not. However, however, Pizzagate was an example of how somebody, in this case, the alt-right, took an idea and missionized it. And I literally watched some of my own friends from the sex cult get walked into QAnon, which is now being called the world's first super conspiracy, like because of the basically don't rape the children, right? Save the children thing. And so it's this example of how like, you even if you think you're right, you know, like you think you're a hundred percent right, that can be your blind spot. Like that can be what is used to get you into extremism. Yeah. I so think, I think I don't that- I don't know who like the politician you disagree with the most is, but for me, I do this exercise that I call like, what if Ted Cruz is right? Or I could say Donald Trump, you know, just like somebody I think has never said a right thing in their life. And every once in a while, I just have to be like, but what if they're right and I'm wrong? Mm. And then I just sit there for a while and feel uncomfortable with it. And then I just shake it off and go, no, I really think I'm probably okay. Um, But having, I just think having this exercise of like, what is, what if the other side is right? can just be like a really important thing for us to do to keep ourselves away from the extreme level of any kind of idea. It's empowering. Um, I think the ability to say, I could be wrong, I am wrong, admit that you're wrong about a topic, which is very uncommon now. I think people are way too comfortable in their opinions and to sort of try and pull out of that it's almost like it's almost like open heart surgery it really is um yeah i mean there's a moment in my book where we've had so i was i ended up being one of the first women to integrate into these deliberate ground combat teams and there was a mission that went really wrong and from our perspective pretty obvious bad guy stuff it's an ambush set by terrorists that killed 10 of our people. But the scene is me at the funeral. And these were like my guys. These were my friends. This was my team. I still can barely talk about it without crying. But I also feel like the other half of my brain was going, okay, but the people died on that side too. Right. And they died for their mission. They think they were right, too. You know, if you are willing to die for your cause, you're pretty sure your cause is right. Yeah. And just like this is one of the things I think my life gave me. And this is one of the reasons I think I was a good intelligence officer was the ability to hold space for, you know, I don't think we're wrong here, but I can acknowledge that they're just as sure that they're not wrong. Yeah. I think that's really insightful what you just said. And yeah, it's 
crazy that we can't have an oppositioned opinion, even with a, a, a talking debated opinion without someone yelling at you now. Like you could have an opinion, even if you're right or you're wrong, odds are the other individual won't really want to listen to your opinion. They just want to yell at you and get you to agree with them. That's the society we live in now, getting yelled at and get told to agree with you. I agree with them, sorry. And Yeah, I mean, I honestly have an opinion that the U.S. is already in a civil war. This is just what it looks like. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is because one of the first things that happens when you're in a war is com official communications break down. And, like, that is what we have. Like, our our... When I walked out of a cult 20 years ago, it was very rare to meet another American who had lost like all contact with their family because they didn't believe in the one ideology, the one guru. And now it's very common. Mm. You know, like it, I'm, I'm writing a second book now called The Culting of America, just to kind of describe this complete polarization and complete... It's just what you said. It's it's nobody's talking. When they're talking, they're just talking to scream at each other, but nobody's convincing each other of their point because nobody can they're even listening. hold space yeah. for, for the other side. It's really kind of scary right now. You'll definitely have to let me know when that second book drops too, by the way. I'd I'd be really fascinated to read that. Um look, Daniela, I thank you a lot for coming on the podcast today. I had an absolute amazing time talking with you uh but look before we go is there some social media you'd like to plug and even plug your book and your new book coming out yeah absolutely so i'm the most active on tiktok where i can be found every day knitting and talking about cult stuff and where we find it in the real world and i also posted on instagram for all the dinosaurs and um the easiest way to find me is just hashtag group behavior gal on either of those websites because my name is complicated. And then my paperback is now on presale in comes out November 7th in the US, November 29th in the UK and Australia. And what I'm telling people about the paperback is first, I'll remind you to be skeptical of anyone that teaches you about a problem and then sells you their solution but also go buy my book. Um, <laughs> no, the, the paperback is a great like $20 holiday gift to give to somebody in your life that needs to question the groups that they're in. And you don't even have to like tell them what it's about. Like in that way, you can just be like, this is about a girl who grows up in a sex call and then she's in the army and the book itself will do the work of like asking them to question their groups. Um. So those are my plugs. It's also available now in hard copy and on audio, which I recorded myself. So there are many ways to get the story of Uncultured. Thank you for reading it yourself, by the way. Um, it's really refreshing when I get um, to hear an author read their own book. Oh, yeah, thanks. It was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done was record that book in five days. Um, so I really like it when people listen to the audio. Um, and then what I will say about the new book is like, I'm currently writing it, like I'm actively researching chapter two, so it's going to be a while, but the fun part is I'm doing it all on TikTok. So I'm like 
talking about the things. People answer my questions. They lead me to new research. So I think I'm really writing like a book that's going to talk to everyone about the groups that they're in. But if anyone wants to be part of that conversation, please come join us on TikTok. That's, that's really cool. I cannot wait for your new book. And um, please drop me a line when it does come out because I'd be really happy to, to read it because I think you're current book that i'm reading is a really good book i would advise anyone if they'd like to uh to read it um and yeah daniela thank you again for coming on the podcast i appreciate it so much i had a blast talking with you and thank you thanks so much for having me dale oh good thank you very much sorry for making you get up too early (laughs) (laughs) that's fine